Our first lesson is taken from Zechariah chapter 12, beginning at verse 10 and continuing on into chapter 13, uh, verses 2 and then 7 to 9. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets, and the spirit of uncleanness. Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, this is my God. The word of the Lord. Stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. And also, and also with, with you. you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory, Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Gospel of Christ. Praise Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Let's bow our heads. Grant, O Lord, that in the written word and through my spoken words, we may see and behold the living word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. I'd invite you to be seated, please, and as you do that, you may want to turn to a copy of today's passage from Zechariah chapters 12 and 13. I would never normally do this, but please turn to your phones uh, if you happen to have the Bible text there or in your bulletin or in a Bible itself. It's uh, no secret, I guess, to anyone that we, we live in a world where standards of success and failure can be very inflexible. And those who succeed in any field tend to attract much more praise and attention than those who don't. But failure is only human. Everyone makes mistakes, everyone screws up from time to time, and when we do, in work, family, or even church settings, there can also be a great temptation, sometimes even incentive in a competitive society like ours, to seek to hide our shortcomings from others, even from ourselves. The trouble is that when we take that approach too far, we can end up leading repressed, dishonest, secretive lives. And we can become so ridden with guilt or shame that we are hindered in our emotional and spiritual growth as individuals, as families, even as church communities. It was partly because he saw such problems in the academic world that in 2016, a Princeton professor once posted what he called his CV of failures on Twitter for the whole world to see. His rationale was also to counter false impressions and to encourage folks to see the significance of other factors. People are more likely to attribute their own failures to themselves rather than the fact that the world is pretty random, Johannes Haushofer said. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Applications in the academic world are crapshoots and selection committees and referees have bad days. This CV of failures is an attempt to balance the record and provide some perspective. Haushofer also went into some detail. His resume included such enlightening categories as 
degree programs I did not get into, research funding I did not get, and paper rejections from academic journals. And he was very honest. Most of what I try fails, he confessed. But these failures are often invisible while the successes are visible. I've noticed that this sometimes gives others the impression that most things work out for me. He also recognized that projecting only success and never recognizing failure has damaging effects. And if we think of failure in spiritual terms, of course, the effects can be disastrous, even eternal. The wages of sin is death. The Apostle Paul writes in the wonderful old translation of Romans 6.23, it is only the amazing grace of the gift of God which brings eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The prophet Zechariah was also a realist. He was active some 2,500 years ago to the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah, which had been exiled on the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 587 BC. As Pastor John Stovall has helpfully summarized, he ministered in difficult circumstances. He began in about 520 BC, 20 years after the initial return from exile in Babylon. Earlier prophets had promised a grand restoration of God's covenant people. But the reality after Babylon was far different. The temple wasn't grand, but small. The land wasn't flowing with wine, oil, milk, or honey. The people were divided, distracted, and discouraged. The high priest, Joshua, and the ruler, Zerubbabel, seemed to be the only ones who stood for the ancient ways, vainly trying to restore peace, prosperity, and holiness. Both, however, themselves needed restoration as much as the people of the land. Israel might be back in the land technically, but the so-called return from exile was woefully inadequate, subject to the whims of the Persian king. Judah and Jerusalem, he concludes, were poor, divided, and politically marginalized. Now, in such a situation, Zechariah obviously supports the return, and he looks to a more positive future, but he's also been warning that the process will remain challenging and will require sacrifice. And one of the main reasons is because a lasting change of location will require a genuine change of heart. So that the problems of sin, idolatry, and unfaithfulness, which landed the people in exile in the first place, don't lead them straight back there. In other words, genuine and lasting return and renewal will first require the kind of spiritual devotion 
and repentance, that truly means leaving the past behind. And this applies as much to the immediate circumstances in which the remnant of Judah finds itself as to the much greater work of salvation and redemption from spiritual exile, which Zechariah foresees many years ahead in the clearly messianic prophecies of the coming of Christ, which we find at least three times in his book, including in today's reading from Zechariah 12 and 13. In that sense, our reading can be said to offer us vital keys to revival, to quote my sermon title. As Zechariah points the way from regret and remorse through repentance and renewal to revival. That's five R's for those counting my alliteration this morning. I didn't spend four years as a Baptist pastor for nothing. So let's begin with regret and remorse. Anyone who's gone through a heartbreaking bereavement will know how painful it can be. Some of you are going through that right now. And anyone who has felt regret or remorse over past mistakes or missed opportunities won't need me to tell you that these can be very bitter, even searing experiences. But that doesn't mean that such feelings are unhealthy, of course. A stiff upper lip Brit like me may have been taught from the age of five that boys don't cry. But that wasn't a very healthy lesson, to say the least. God has made us emotional as well as rational beings, and we're simply not being ourselves if we repress or seek to hide our emotions in unhealthy ways. Zechariah certainly gives plenty of strong feelings vent in chapter 12. And he does so as a prelude to far-sweeping predictions of national as well as spiritual renewal and revival. In the first nine verses, he has already foretold victory for Judah against all comers in Jerusalem. And I quote, The Lord will give victory to the tents of Judah first, we read in verse 7 following that the glory of the house of the Lord and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be exalted over that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will put a shield about the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord at their head. And on that day... I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All this will unmistakably be God's work. God will also personally act to ensure that victory will be followed not by rejoicing, although there no doubt was some of that, but by remorse, regret, and mourning. And I will pour out 
on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, Zechariah continues in verse 10, speaking directly on God's behalf as he has a right as a prophet to do, so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Scholars have struggled mightily to find an immediate historical reference for him whom they have pierced here. The most natural interpretation is that the person or perhaps people in mind are among those who have lost their lives in battle over Jerusalem. There's also been a wide-ranging scholarly debate, and I won't treat you to all the details of that this morning, over the meaning of verse 12, where the prophet writes that on that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad-Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. But rather than taking Hadad-Rimmon as a person, the text reads most comfortably when both it and Megiddo are understood as place names. What is unmistakable in verse 11 is a future messianic reference to Christ on the cross as the one who has been pierced. We know this from John's account of the crucifixion in chapter 19, verse 34 of his gospel, where he sees the fact that Jesus was pierced with a spear as a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 12. And how can we explain such double references? The most helpful way for me is to imagine a prophet like Zechariah wearing a kind of historical bifocals. So in his near vision, he sees immediate events surrounding the return and rebuilding of Jerusalem. But much beyond that, when he looks up, he sees a more distant time and place when Christ will fulfill God's plan of spiritual salvation in person. And when we think of that bigger picture, we find themes in today's reading that apply whenever God brings renewal or revival to his people. Not least mourning and repentance over sin, which is universal among the people in verses 12 through 14. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of the Shemites by themselves and the wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And to come to my next two keys of revival, repentance is what leads to spiritual renewal. One of the main reasons why I love the old Anglican Book of Common Prayer is that as well as being so thoroughly biblical 
and poetic. Its language is so clear and forceful. We said a classic example last week when we joined together in the BCP confession, and I quote from the opening lines, Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past. But nowadays, while we may be growing in our understanding of the systemic and institutional corruption of society, which is a good thing, many are much less comfortable with a biblical notion of personal sin. We'd rather focus on a loving, forgiving God who graciously accepts us as we are, just as God does, of course, by grace through faith in Christ, than on a God who hates sin, hates sin, and will judge sinners as he will. I'm reminded of a satirical prayer of confession for people who are okay, which is based on the work of David Head. And again, I quote, Benevolent and easygoing parent, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we've sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best that we could. We are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. In her book, The Art of the Public Grovel, Susan Weiss Bauer offers a helpful distinction intended, in fact, for the Me Too era. She writes, an apology is an expression of regret. I'm sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I am sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. Apology addresses an audience. Confession implies an inner change that will be manifested in outward action. True repentance does that too. It's more than just a change of mind or heart. It leads to the kind of changed behavior and transformed lives that we find at work by God's grace in verses 1 and 2 of Zechariah 13. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols 
from their land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirit. In other words, when the people have recognized their sin, when they have mourned its consequences, God himself will cleanse and release them from the sway of false teachers and the powers of darkness. And that's God's wonderful promise to us all in Christ, if you think about it. As the Apostle John writes in verse 9 of 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the freedom that God promises is complete when we have truly repented of our sins and received Christ as our Lord and Savior, as Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 to 14, we can truly say that God has delivered us, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful, heart-warming truth that is. The question, as always, is how we respond to God's promises, which brings us to my final R, and we are getting there, and revival. As our gospel reminds us today, Jesus' mission is clear. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he tells the Pharisees and other religious leaders who question his mixing with those they consider notorious sinners like Matthew the tax collector. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew himself responds immediately to Jesus' simple call to follow him and becomes one of the 12 apostles, of course. But the sad reality is that not all come to faith. The ultimate mystery of grace is unfathomable to us. It's best left, in my opinion, in God's hands. And that's true throughout biblical history. In verses 7 through 9, of Zechariah 13, we have another vivid and violent picture of God acting in judgment. And it's important here as elsewhere to remember that Zechariah's prophecies are written in an apocalyptic literary style. They're no more intended to be taken strictly literally than much of the books of Daniel or Revelation. And if anyone wants to explore that question further, Gordon Fees and Douglas Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, is still the best introduction I know on how literary as well as historical context should shape the interpretation of biblical text. But what can we make of verses 7 through 9? Basically, The picture is one where leadership will be displaced and many of the remaining people will fall away. Yet, a remnant of one-third will be refined through suffering into a new, more devoted 
people of God, as we read in verse 9, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Verse 7 is another place where we see a direct foreshadowing of Christ when he quotes it to his disciples en route to the Mount of Olives just before his crucifixion and says, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus notably describes himself as the good shepherd in John 10 who calls his sheep by name, nurtures them and is ultimately responsible to lay down his life for us all. So just as Zechariah looks forward to a a renewed and chastened people devoted to their God, our reading also points to the coming of the Messianic King, the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, through whom all may find forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. It also, as we have seen, highlights some significant keys to revival which can be helpful to us all wherever we may be on our spiritual journey. First, of course, we're reminded that the only way, the only way to find forgiveness and new spiritual life is by repenting of our sins and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior by grace through faith in him. And if there's anyone here today who has yet to do that or maybe senses a need to recommit their lives to the Lord, I would encourage you to take that opportunity. There's no time like the present. And as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, today as on every other day, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Second, if we're seeking renewal and revival as a community, especially as we return from our own communal exile under COVID lockdown, we're surely encouraged to consider where we stand before God. Do we mourn our past losses? Do we suffer remorse and regret for our missed opportunities or how we have failed those within and around us? Then surely we too may be called to seek God's face in repentance and prayer. We too must seek the kind of personal and corporate renewal that leads to lasting change. Now, don't get me wrong here. This is my third week with you on a Sunday. Little Trinity is already, as I can well see, a vibrant, healthy, and fruitful church. And it's not my place as a guest preacher to come in and tell you all your sins, even if I knew them, and I haven't been here anywhere near long enough to do that. 
But my sense is, if you'll permit me to say so, that God always has more in store. God always wants to bless us and use us for his glory. And if we are to become all that God made us to be, we are always led back to the author and protector of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ. For when we truly turn to him in heartfelt devotion, when we seek his face in repentance and ask for renewal, when we ask to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it's amazing what God can and will do. Every revival in biblical and church history has been ultimately a sovereign work of grace. But it has come to those who have been ready and yearning to receive it. And we are asked to do all this in faith. As the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. As we head into this coming church year with all that it holds in store, may we be among those who earnestly seek God. And may we find him in all his wonder and glory and peace and forgiveness and joy in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the ultimate key to revival for us all. Let's bow our heads. Loving God, we thank you for your word and how you can speak to us through words that were written 2,500 years ago as if we're hearing them for the first time today. Lord, we know where we stand this morning and we're all in different places, but we all know that we need to know more of you and your grace, and your strength in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for all those ways in which we have fallen short or failed others. Restore us, O Lord. Restore the honor of your name. And may we be part of extending your kingdom in this world to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.